Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. Hey everyone, just wanted to take a quick second to shout out our friends at QDB.com. That's C-U-E-D-B.com. QDB is a cloud-based software that allows you to make your own customizable cue lists for spotting, composition, orchestration, mixing, and cue sheet delivery. If you'd like to try it out, use the code COMPOSERTALK for 15% off for one year. I'm very excited to talk with one of the most innovative artists of our time. He is an American composer and electronic musician based in Baltimore, Maryland. He had three projects premiere this year at Sundance, Ted Passan and Yoni Brooks' docuseries Philly DA, Albert Burney and Kentucker Audley's feature film Strawberry Mansion, and Theo Anthony's documentary All Light Everywhere. And the composer is Dan Deacon. Uh, that was the nicest uh, introduction I've ever gotten in my life. So thank you very, very much. For sure. Well, I actually saw you, it was a couple years ago, I think, at the Adult Swim Festival. Oh, yes. Didn't know you were playing and was <laughs> blown away just by which, uh, that whole... Which town was that in? Because there were a couple of those. That was... Yeah, I saw the performance in LA. In LA, okay, cool. Yeah. That makes sense. I There were a couple in like uh, Alabama that were real wild. And... uh the, the LA one. Oh, the 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 festival. That, I'm thinking of the Adult Swim like circus or carnival. Those were like that was an insane time. The, the Adult Swim festival is very chill. I love that festival. Yeah, it's a fun one. I'm I'm hoping that that uh, exists again after all of this. Year. Yeah, me too. Or past year, I guess. <laughs> me too. Um, so you're from West Babylon, New York, right? That's where I uh, grew up and went to high school. Yeah. If I went to high school in Babylon, it was this weird situation where like. I could see the West Babylon High School from my house, but the school I went to was like, I don't, this, this is the, these are the details people want to hear on the composer talk. Um, uh, but yeah, I grew up on Long Island. Gotcha. Was the ska scene there really cool? It was, it was the best. Couldn't have been better. It was a really great time to be um, like a low brass loving nerd was to be in junior high and high school in the 90s. Like I played trombone and then I switched to tuba because there were no, all the other tuba players had graduated. And I think like the band teacher was like, you're fat and you play trombone. Why don't you uh, play tuba? So it was just like the natural progression. And, but I, I mean, I never really, once I switched from trombone to tuba, I kind of like lost my ability to play either. Like my embouchure was just terrible. And to go from like slide positions to valve fingering, I was just lost. But um, luckily, it had taught me how to like read and write music. So that was my like first introduction with ska. And I just like going to shows and ska was real fun. And if you were a total nerd, which I happened to be, it uh, was a real social outlet for that. You weren't the cool kid in uh, middle school, high school? Uh, no, no, I wasn't. <laughs> I don't think any of us uh, composers really are. <laughs> <laughs> just imagining like... Philip Glass, like riding up on a skateboard and just like, you know, p- pulling down a whole cigarette in one drag. And f- I don't know. <laughs> uh, so were you making music like in your free time then? Or was it just like, pl- like I don't know, were you like writing music and messing around with computers for, for making stuff? <laughs> kind of. Yeah. I kind of, it's kind of filled the role of video games. I had a... Mm-hmm. Uh, Like on my family's computer, um, they bought like a beige Windows 3.1 machine, like some self-built PC from like a family friend. And for some reason it had this software called MIDISoft. And it was a lot like Microsoft Paint, but instead of it being like a blank white canvas, it was just a blank staff. And you could just click on it and put notes and rest. There were no dynamics. And I feel like you can still... uh, hear that early influence in most of my music now. So it was the only way you could achieve density, or I mean, I'm sorry, the only way you could achieve any 
um, sense of dynamics was to add voices or take them away. Hmm. And it was super fun. I would just do it for like hours and hours and it became my, my main hobby and what I would like think about when I was home. And it just really brought me to another place. And it was at a time where like it was pre email. So I would like call up friends and just like hold the phone up to the speaker. And then like, you know, for like six minutes, and then I'd come back. And of course they would have hung up, like who's going to listen to like a MIDI file over the phone for six minutes. But that's how we like wrote songs in the band. And I kind of got into writing music for other people by being this, I couldn't play anything, but I really wanted to be in there. I couldn't really sing, but I could like hold the crowd's attention. So I was the front person of the band and I did a lot of the writing and I can't imagine what my life would have been like if I didn't discover that MIDI soft software. Right. Yeah. It's funny how like a piece of gear or software like that can really, you know, help you express yourself. Totally. I often wonder like, like what would Duke Ellington have done if he was born in the Renaissance or like if Fred Astaire was born before tap dancing would, I don't know. I think about that constantly. I feel like Varese is a good example of like someone who was born a little too early. Like if Varese mm. like didn't have that like frustration with the what they saw as the limitations of acoustic music. Like I wonder what Varese would be churning out like in the if they were born in the sixties. Hmm. I think he would have been playing Call of Duty. <laughs> yeah, Varese would have been <laughs> shit talking on Call of Duty like crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I, I, I do think that there's just so much stuff out there right now that, that it almost feels distracting sometimes. So it's hard to, to focus on one idea and kind of make it evolve. Oh, definitely. Something I actually think you do amazingly well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, would you describe yourself actually as a, uh, in terms of what you mentioned with the lack of velocity with that software, do you think of yourself as a maximalist when it comes to production or how do you think you approach the craft? I, I think so. I, I it definitely, there's a maximalist stage in my career. I don't know if I'm still there. Um, but I definitely had a love of density and seeing how many sounds you could mix into, you know, a stereo mix and how far you could go before it was just completely oversaturated and, Basking in that, like, I really would love a plug-in of, like, a uh, early 2000s YouTube from, like, horrible camcorder compression. Like, I think that might be, like, the most amazing... You can go to any show and hear, like, this blown-out speaker through early YouTube compression. I'm like, wow, that just sounds like the most amazing. I just want to go be in that moment forever. Um, But now I don't know. Now I'm really into, especially as, like sample packs get better and more velocity sensitive. It's easier to virtually compose with, uh, I guess it's not virtually composing. I don't know why. (laughs) Um, It's easier to work with dynamics back when it was just volume. Like so much of dynamic is, is timbre. And, you know, as I used to work almost exclusively with reason and a couple of the reason packs would have like velocity sensitive samples, but for the most part, it was one sample and you just had to make it louder or quieter. And it just sounded like a loud sound quiet, which to me sounds terrible. It doesn't sound like, you know, hitting a, hitting a vibraphone at double forte and just turning the volume down doesn't sound the same as like softly a soft piano strike. You know what I mean? So yeah, I think that's how I got. So, and I was playing concerts in like basements and bars and warehouses out of like, I had to compete with the noise floor of conversation and just like surrounding chaos. So everything was, had to be pretty maximally loud. Now that I'm like working in, I guess, mostly film, it's, there's so much more range and I can't get as maximalist, you know, and sometimes directors will come to me and they'll be like, oh, we want this to be like a really big sound. And I'm like, well, there's like tons of environment shifts that are going to have sound design and you're going to have like dialogue over the entire thing. Like, do you really want to have this like full orchestra with 
drum kit and electronics going. And they look at me like, aren't you like that guy? Like, are you, are you lame now? Like what, what happened to you? For sure. It's a, it's a tricky thing. Do you, do you ever feel like you do collaborate with a sound designer on any of the, the projects you work with to kind of figure out these ways to take up frequency range and space sonically? Whenever possible, I, I love that relationship because when you, when I don't have that, I feel like I'm like in a band and there's like a whole other band that's playing on the actual stage. And I'm just, I don't know if I'm in the mix or I'm out of the mix. And it's just such a shame how, um, film and television wait so long on sound and it's always the last stage of the process. And I always prefer when there's three people involved, the composer, the sound designer, and the mixer. Because the mixer has no creative attachment to the creation of the sound design or the score. So they can really mix it with more balanced ears. Kind of the same way that you never want whoever mixed your album to also master it. Like it's always best to have someone coming in completely fresh, no attachment. There's, there's, it's just too difficult, I think, to do the sound design, which is such a skill and takes such craft, and then to also mix it. I, I feel like you, you get too attached to the sounds you're creating. The same way I shouldn't mix it. If I mixed the film, you wouldn't hear any of the dialogue. I'd be like, oh, no, this part's sick. You got to turn this part up. This uh, the score here is real nice. I know what they're saying is important, but like throw some subtitles up or something. So I think, I think that division of responsibility is super important, but rare is that the case, mm. at least for the projects I'm working on. Right. Yeah, it's funny because I guess um, it really does take a lot of stuff going on to be able to to utilize the full extent of you know stacking loops and stacking instruments <laughs> and not have it feel out of place. And to to when you know how much work went into something, it's hard to turn it down to such a level that like seems what is actually appropriate. Like I tend to mix pretty hot Mm. Um, and I'm trying to get better at writing quieter so that like when I hear it quiet in the mix, it doesn't seem off because, you know, when I'm watching something looping a scene, you know, again and again and again and again and again, I forget how I start to know exactly what they're saying. So I don't need it Mm -hmm. to be as loud because my memory is filling in the, it's like when you're on a cell phone and someone says, can you hear me now? Even if you can't really understand, you know, the cadence of like, can you hear me now? And you know what that means? Like people should really say something that you've never heard before. So you can be like, yes, I heard you just say like the dog is the umbrella because I wouldn't have assumed you said the dog. Am I making any sense? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) You are extremely kind. I love having that early relationship with the sound designer and Ultimately, that trust, knowing that like what I'm crafting is going into uh, like-minded hands and ears. And it, I've been really lucky to have like CJ Mira mixed Time Trial uh, or did the sound design on Time Trial. And we talked a lot. And now they've got a uh, – I don't know. They come to mind as a sound designer that uh, I was really lucky to to work with early on. And we talked a lot during the process and after the process. And Udit, who did All Light Everywhere, is incredible, and I wish we could have had more contact. But we talked, we did a lot before they started mixing, and they sent versions back and forth, and were super receptive to notes. And luckily, I didn't have any notes because they were so uh, close in vision and scope. But it's just great to have that. And sometimes it's just nice to uh, talk to the sound designer to commiserate, to be like, oh my God, they unlocked the picture, or... What are we going to do? How the edit's so far behind and they're not changing our delivery date. Like, it's just nice to have that kind of like, it's such a solitary job being the composer. You know what I mean? And it's nice to feel like part of a larger team and having that relationship with the sound designer really is, uh, it makes, I think, the whole film more cohesive. And yeah, it's true what you say, I mean, about... I feel like the music editor is the the person I like to have a lot of trust with, and you know, joke about. Oh God, this is never going to get locked. Yeah, We're so in it, definitely. Uh, but but when you say that, right, do you do you collaborate with a lot of people on the actual creation of the scores that you do, or do you feel like a majority of it is just done at your studio by yourself? That's a good question. Uh, I would say it changes project to project. Um, sometimes, like with All Light Everywhere, that was 
mostly chopped up, manipulated, and processed improvisations from this trio that we did a couple. Of, we did one session with Susan Alcorn on pedal steel, Owen Gardner on cello, and Andrew Bernstein on alto sax. And we set them up in separate rooms, and I would just like give like Fluxus style instructions over the mic, like, all right, we're going to do like a 10 minute take where pretend you're a cloud and you're slowly drifting past the sun. All right. Now we're doing only play when someone else is playing and the moment they stop, you stop. And if you feel like you're leading the group rest, if you feel like no one's leading the group, take control until you feel like you've taken control. Like just these sort of like weird, sort of like almost theater game style playing just to build like a large library of sound to then chop up and splice and like create, um, I don't know, just, just to have these available textures and then to put them into granular synth. And so that was pretty, even though I was working with those players, that was only that one session. And then there's Philly DA where there's kind of these, like every week I get a new episode. This is my first series. So I've never really like, I don't know if this is common, but like I normally spend a lot of time, like, like years on like a documentary and um, to write so much music in, in like eight days is a new pace for me. Like even like with my albums, it takes like years and years. So it's been a really fun process diving into that. And sometimes I'll just like, there's this group mind on fire in Baltimore. That's like this amazing, like a uh, community new music group. And I'll call up, James or Allie from then, and I'll be like, I need, I need bassoon by four o'clock, and I, yeah, you gotta find me a cellist. And they've been an amazing resource, so that's been really fun. So, yeah, I'd say it's most, but mostly the most contact I have is with the director and just trying to get into like their head as much as possible. Um, and I try to do that as as early as possible, so that like no one falls in love with the temp music. Like whenever I start a project, I'm always like, please remove all the temp music and just show me the film without any music. Like, I think it'd be best to start fresh. To me, like starting with the temp music is like the equivalent of starting a relationship being like, do you have any like pictures of you and your ex? Like, let me see those. Maybe I could wear the same clothes. Maybe we can go to the same places, do the same things. Like, I think it it's better just to kind of like, I'd rather start with a subtractive process of like, no, this isn't on the nose or this is too on the nose or this isn't right to hone in and build that common language with the director than it is to, at least for me, cause I'm not a very good, like chameleon. Some people can hear something and just like write it, but my ears are not like that. And neither are my other skills. My ears, I count my ears as a, as a never mind. I'm ran- I haven't spoken to another human being all day. So I'm sorry for subjecting you to these uh, rambles. But yeah, for the most part, it's a pretty solitary uh, process. Gotcha. Yeah, I love what you said about temp. <laughs> I've never heard it <laughs> phrased that way. But it's funny because when I first moved to LA, I felt like I was a lot more productive in a sense and just getting minutes of music done when mm-hmm. there is a good temp track. But I just didn't feel like I ever did anything that I was proud of at the end of the day. <laughs> it's when, odd. I yeah. know I know exactly what you mean. But like the the one thing I do like about it is like getting getting like basically transcribing it and then mm. seeing how far I can take it while the director is still like all right, yeah, sounds good. But I haven't had many instances with that. Only a couple of projects and I get where they're coming from. Sometimes they'll be working with temp for years and years and it's so married into the process that like but that's when I think you need to go a complete 180 degree turn and wipe the slate as clean as possible, but everyone's got their own process and drives me nuts. It's fun though, but that's, that's the fun part is it's like starting a band or especially with a documentary because they might've been working on this project for over a decade. And now all of a sudden, like they bring in the composer and the entire mood and vibe shifts instantly by like removing temp and bringing in new music. And so many things that have been refined over years and years are now um, has this completely new layer on them that that it's it. I, I like thinking about every project as starting a new band, where they might have already written songs. Sometimes there might be no songs. We're coming in from scratch. Um, 
that'd be like, you know, starting with a script being like, I wrote these lyrics. Like, do you want to see if we can like, you know, I heard you got a bass. These guys got drums. Um, but with a documentary, it's like I've written these songs and I've been working on them for years and only I don't need, I don't know how to finish the story. So that can be a little more difficult. I kind of find narrative to be a little more exploratory, maybe. I don't know. But it really depends on the direct. Like Theo, who did Rat Film and All Out Everywhere and Subject to Review, we've just got a real like second nature sort of process now. And Am I making, I'm rambling. I'm just utterly rambling. I guess I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, but when I do, I tend to find them to be very rambly. So maybe I'm just embodying, not yours. Yours is like, when I was listening to yours earlier today to like do my homework and I was like, oh man, I am screwed. Oh my God, <laughs> what am I going to do? So no, uh, I mean, I think this is all interesting and yeah, it's, <laughs> it's so funny because every album of yours, I, I, I love that it's a completely different like, or not like completely different, but you you always create these interesting sonic worlds, and I think that I that has also gone on to your film scoring too. Where each, it's not like you ever like take the the player piano and just like that's the sound of this film, and then I'm going to use it again on this next thing. It's like you always have a unique sense of storytelling while changing up the the colors you paint with. Thank you so much. Yeah. Do you ever get um? I don't know. Is there any type of process to tr trying to figure out how to expand that sonic world or do you just buy more shit and <laughs> see what happens? <laughs> <laughs> Buying more shit definitely plays into it. Definitely helps. Um, it's like, the, it's like the, the, um, the greatest asset and biggest curse in computer music are constant updates. Like mm -hmm. um, I'll always, be psyched when like a new pack comes out or I see like Ortori is having a sale or I splurge and change my East West subscription or something. But at the same time, like I'm, I'm not becoming virtuosic at any of my instruments because they're constantly changing. Like Ableton is my main go-to instrument for lack of a better term. And with each update, it's different enough where the muscle memory is gone and I have to think the, the, the fugue state that I used to get in with, like I used to only use reason either 2.5 or three. I can't remember. And I knew it like the back of my hand and I could sit down and open it and start writing the same way people could pick up a guitar or sit down at a piano. And I haven't felt that same way since. So maybe 10 years and I feel proficient and uh, to not, you know, to risk sounding egotistical, I feel skilled at Ableton, but I know 11 is around the corner. And when I open that, I'm going to open up Ableton 11 and I'm going to feel like a sense of future shock being like, what is this? This is a new thing. It looks so familiar, but it's different. And there's going to be this learning period. And by the time I start to master it, there'll be a new one. And imagine if like every five years, a new cello came out and like the fingerboard was just a little different and this tuning had changed and the you had to hold the bow differently. Like I, I just, that's what drives me crazy about modern computer music is that it's always evolving, so that always helps my sound evolve, but it's always changing to the point where like I'll I'll break a groove when I go to do a quick key and it's no longer that anymore, or a certain function has changed, or little little things. And there's nothing that can be done because everyone uses it different. I, I did this conference for Wired and they had a rep from Adobe there, like one of the main Adobe uh software engineers and I wish I could remember their name and we were just like riffing because they were like they were like I think they were like getting into Ableton or something they're like asking me questions and I was like hey why are these quick keys different on Illustrator and Pro Tools and he's like I was like I'm sorry I asked you that like I'm he's like he, he's like whenever anybody finds out that I work for Adobe and they use Adobe products they ask me basically that question hmm. and I was like all right well what's the fucking answer to that and, and he was like, because which community do you serve? Like, if we change it so that everything is are the Pro Tools hotkeys, then all the other software is pissed off. If we make, and then, he, and then I started thinking about it and I was like, this is what's happening. 
happening with Pro Tools. Like Pro Tools has so many options. Like the feature creep is just crazy that you kind of just have to like either go down that road where it becomes just like, you know, what's that video game where it's just like a tumbling ball that gets covered in objects? I don't think I know that one. Oh, it's this wild looking game. And it was just like this gigantic ball that's just like tumbling and gathering things. And it just looks incredible. I think I've never played this game. I've only watched people play it, but I think about it constantly. And I don't know what it's called. Um, if that's a summary for how my brain works, I feel like that's a really <laughs> good example. Um, or you just have to change things. Or you just have to like steamroll in new features and be like, we made this major change. Now you can no longer do fades this way. And yada, yada, yada. Like it's just, that's just, the way, the nature of software. But then my brain spirals and I'm like, will there even be a computer in a hundred years that can open up an Ableton file? Like, let alone mine, but like the masterworks of the early 21st century. Like, will these be able to be opened the same way that we can like look at like, you know, a score by George Crumb today and it's the exact same score. It's paper. Like, will software, will we have, have we already lost masterworks by like Aphex Twin? You know what I mean? Like what kind of digital archiving is happening? What kind of, what kind of system will need to exist in the year 2222 to open up the Chemical Brothers sequencer track? You know what I mean? Like that hat, if we're thinking about like, this as being like a a branch of, the long rooted tradition of music. We know that there's a, these extended period of times in music where the compositions are lost or what they actually meant to be were lost. And granted we'll have the recordings, but not the, to me, the real interesting part about music now is how we could really dive in on a level that we've never been able to before. But I think that's so it's fleeting and it's naive to think that we'll have it forever. This, I, I can't even remember your question. I'm on such a tangent and I haven't let you say a word. I'm a awful podcast guest. I'm sorry. No, all good. But it sounds like you had a thought there that you wanted to finish though. No, I, I'll never, I never want to finish any thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. But yeah, I mean, I was, uh, was interning at Eventide my senior year of college. And I remember that I think it was Andrew Shep's had like emailed a file and it was an emergency because his system just couldn't open this like legacy eventide plugin. So we had to like open this session, like bounce it out and send it back to him. Damn. It was kind of funny, just like thinking about, I mean, that's one song luckily that came in that day, but all the countless, yeah, hit records. And yeah, I guess it's a reason to stem out your stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's true. The stems are but I guess you lose some of the synthesis then. And if we could have it, we have, but then, you know, that's just like, that's like the equivalent of like digital hoarding, like mm. having like, Oh no, but I need to be able to see the exact what's happening here in this file. And if the algorithm changes on the synth, then who knows it will be the same. And, but I think about digital loss. I mean, I lost the hard drive to my first record, Spider-Man of the rings. I didn't lose the hard drive. I just don't know where it went. I didn't, think about archiving it. This was like 2006. And I recorded that album on a borrowed computer with a borrowed interface and a borrowed mic. And I maybe had an external hard drive that I was recording onto, but I didn't think there was a reason to save it. Like there was, I, you know, I'd put out a couple of records before that, that no one cared about. So like, why all of a sudden should I be like, oh, better? Because there's no stems for that record. There's no um, instrumental versions or acapellas. Um, the, the the master is the only one. And my friend AJ did that mastering. Like, we were both, you know, basically just kids. And when we reissued it, people were like, are you going to remaster it? And I was like, no, I can't. And they're like, that's insane. You're going to, anyway. But I don't know. I think about, the fragility of information and like the way we trick ourselves into thinking it's permanent. Like, I just don't know for how long I can trust any of these hard drives and how much will get lost as I bounce one hard drive to another and start like consolidating them all. And how many files have similar names? I don't know. It's just, it's just, I'm a, just a, a messy person in general, as you can tell by my studio probably. 
Um, so digitally, it's like even more of a mess. But I don't know. I just don't. I both want it to be precious and know that it's not. So maybe just going with the flow is the easier way to to think about it. <laughs> if it's reassuring, one of my the worst like you know like night terrors, like waking up in the middle of the night because of a horrible nightmares uh, situations I had, was this one where I log onto my computer and Dropbox disappeared and just completely everything is lost. Oh my god. <laughs> I need to check my Dropbox right now just because you're saying that. <laughs> uh, well, before going to the last segment, I just have one last question for you, um, which is, what does being a film composer mean to you? Oh, he's going out with the big guns, huh? <laughs> uh, it's a good question. Um, I guess ultimately, it's, I love storytelling and I love being a part of that process. I love telling a story. I love listening to a story. And with, I, you know, when I first started making music, I was really, really attached to the idea of, of absolute music, of it being just, um, you know, just to be appreciated for the, I know you know what that is. I don't know why I'm explaining it to you. Um, but I don't know if that really exists. You know what I mean? Like, even like the idea of absolute music comes with the attachment of like, oh, well, let's go to the concert hall or see this chamber group and we'll get dressed up. Like there's, there's still a, a, a prescription and a program to the process and the, the context in which you listen. So I started really falling in love with uh, program music and getting into the idea of like, oh, there's this extended narrative and metaphor and let's dive into that and placing that in my own music as esoteric as it would be. And I don't know what I think, what I like most about working in film is that it, music is a, a small part of a larger thing where as a recording artist, it's the album is the entire thing until the touring cycle takes over. And then the live show becomes the, what it's all about. But with film, it's, 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 it's an extremely vital ingredient, but it's just an ingredient. And I think that's what I like most about it. And, and the collaboration, as much as I'm, you know, separate from the rest of the crew, um, having that like back and forth with the director and the editor um, really shapes the music. It's like I'm making music with all of these non-musicians. They have such vital input on very, very musical choices without being musicians. And I love that about it because it forces me into situations that I would never organically find myself in but they're often the best choice and they're coming at it, not thinking about it like with a musical logic, but with an editor's logic or a director's logic or an actor's logic. And that of course is going to have this impact on the music and changes the whole way I'm thinking about not only that scene, but the whole story. Um, and I guess logic is another thing is like making sure that like things work logically, that like motifs line up and you're not, leading the audience in a wrong direction. And I, you know, one of my favorite things is like going through and being like, well, who is the score for right now? Is this, is this for the audience? Is this like supposed to be the subtext of what we hope they feel? Or are they an observer and this score is for the character on stage and we're witnessing what they're seeing? Like that's two very different ways to interpret music. Like where do we, what's the source of this? What's the subtext? Where's it going? What do we ultimately want the the audience to feel or not feel? And so we, I try to start every process with like, you know, either get the cue sheet or when we go through a list of temp, if it exists or not, and just start with just three words. Like, just give me three words that you think describe what you want this music to be and trying to build off of that and... That's the proto stage is the most fun. I think that's what I, I get the most of out of scoring a film is getting as close to what the director and the, the core storytelling team are trying to do and enhancing that, making sure that it's never a distraction. You know, you want the score to be an important character, but it should never 
it should never shine in a way that takes away. Like, I never want someone to be like, oh, the score sounds awesome here. I want them to think that later after they leave the theater or, you know, take their headphones off they're watching at home on a laptop. I want them to be like, oh, you know, actually the music was cool. Like, it can't, I, you never want to take them out of the universe that you're you're trying to to build or else you're, if you leave a glare on the the dome of the story you're telling, you've, you failed. I failed. You know what I mean? Like some people, mm -hmm. I don't know. Sometimes I am watching me. I'm like, wow, the score is sick. And it doesn't take me out of the universe. Like, like, um, the Mad Max, uh, Fury Road score is sick. It's awesome. But I don't know if I noticed the first time I watched, I loved the movie. I left being like, let's buy tickets and watch it again right now. And then I noticed again on the second viewing when I was watching more for like a, for an appreciation of the film, not just the story. But I think it's a great example of a score that like, I don't know, just did a great job and didn't distract me, but really enhanced and really helped set the tone for the story. Does that make any sense? Did I answer your question? Yeah, sure. I don't know if I answered a single one of your questions. I think I went on really long rants and uh, sorry. If, I also drank a lot of tea today. I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to pile on all the excuses. No, it's all good. I've had my, my caffeine days too, but I, this is all, even though I, I feel like it's just, you know, thoughts spilling out. <laughs> it's just like, this is all very interesting to me. <laughs> Welcome to my nightmare. But what about you? What got you into uh, working in film? You know, it's not something I, I've thought a ton about. I mean, I, I definitely loved the music of Pirates of the Caribbean and Hell yeah. Star Wars as a kid. And it's funny because I, I like to ask, like, you know, what what composers got you interested in in this? And for most of the people who've answered that, I'd say it's probably John Williams and or Hans. One person said Giorgio Moroder, and that made me very happy. That's what's up. <laughs> but yeah, I think I got I got into film scoring because I was in a pop music program in college, wanted to be a Max Martin, and then at the same time was also really into Foster the People and that first album. I just thought was sick. And when I learned that Mark Foster from the band did music at a company called Mophonics doing commercials, I thought, oh, he must have gotten good at hook writing because he did all these ads in his day job. So I started there and then just like loved, yeah, that, that thing that happens when you have the visual and the music, like neither of them need to necessarily be perfect on their own, but when two gr good things or great things come together and you have a product that's greater than equal, totally. individual thing on its own. Like I, I do think like Star Wars's music is pretty great on its own, but you know, just like the Imperial March over that visual of Darth Vader's helmet, you know, it just kicks it all all up a notch. Definitely, and like yeah. we 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 we've never heard it without that imagery. You know what I mean? Like, right? Yeah, you've never I, experienced I, I, it first music wise without totally. the visual. I think about that a lot. Like what I would think of, particularly Star Wars, because you know it's. I know like the back of my hand and um, I wonder what it would have been like to hear, hear that before seeing the movie or if the movie had different music and then it was rescored, like how it's just, it's just impossible. It'd be like saying like, Oh, I wonder how different society would be if the sky was yellow. Like it's just, <laughs> I, I think a lot about film as being like, I don't know, like, like the, our level of technologies opera or ballet like music for so long has been married to a visual component and the way people go out and experience uh, theater now is the movie theater. It's not so much the opera and it's not so much the ballet. Of course those exist. Um, and I think, you know, there's really incredible work being made in, in both fields, but as a composer, it's really nice to, to work in the modern medium you know what I mean? Like, I'd love to work more in ballet. I feel really lucky to have gotten to do so. Um, I've never worked in opera or th not so much in theater at all. But for film, it's just that experience of going to a theater and seeing it uh, like accompanied with image and that there is a larger story. And then you can go home and if the soundtrack's available, you can put on a, that particular theme and just live in that moment longer. Like, like in Total Recall, like the, the score to that is just incredible. And I'll just put that on and I'll be instantly like on the train cruising across Mars, like looking at the mountain range off in the distance, like just wondering like what it would be like to be a commuter on Mars. 
And I think that's what's so fun about it is I'm the kind of person who watches a movie if I like the movie like dozens and dozens of times. Like I must have seen There Will Be Blood like 40 to 50 times. I just love the movie, love the score. I mean, Johnny Greenwood, just anything they put out. I'm not the biggest Radiohead fan, but Johnny Greenwood's scores are just like, it's the kind of music that's just like, ah, what a good idea. God damn it. Um, Just love it. And I'll watch it again and again, and I'll listen to the score and just kind of want to always wish that there were just like new scenes that like, for some reason, just pop up on the DVD that I haven't, of course, because I'm watching it on DVD. (laughs) You know, I'm popping in the DVD, open a new chapter that I never knew was there, pops up. Anyway, I think that's what gets me into it. It's just that it's so enveloping. It, it, uh, as you can tell, my brain's kind of like all over the place, popping around. Um, it's hard for me to stick to a thought. So when you have that sensory overload that cinema provides, um, it's just great to be a part of it. And to write like that, to write with this like, you know, large screen, moving image. I just love it. I love it. Right. You're actually thinking about this more too. I just realized that one of the experiences for me that made me want to go into film scoring specifically was when I was studying abroad in Berlin and I saw a film. It was like a, you know, like a silent film or whatever, but then they had a DJ, I think kind of create music kind of like they would with organ players back in the day. And I just thought mm-hmm. that, that was so cool. Someone like improvising over this movie, even though I, can't remember what the movie was or a lick of the music. I just That's like the most Berlin thing I've I've heard. So that, that makes perfect sense. I love yeah. that it's a DJ as well. For sure. I mean, I, I really would love to do that in the future. Just kind of pop up with a, know, like a core Kronos or something at yeah, a movie man. theater. Just try seeing what happens. Oh, you definitely should. There's a, um, there's a silent movie festival. I can't remember what it is that has, that's like the basis of it. It's like live scores to, mm-hmm. I believe pre-existing silent films, because so many of them are in the public domain now. Um, granted, getting them converted is difficult, but I, 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 it's something I've always wanted to do as well, and you should definitely do it. For sure. Well, anyways, I think we'll just go on to the last segment for the podcast now, a segment called Tech Talk. Tech Talk! Uh, a segment where Coming I up list some off tech a talk. tech topic, you say <laughs> as much or as little as you want about it. <laughs> I love Tech Talk. Let's dive in. Cool. Well, the first one I ask everyone is DAW. It seems like Ableton. Pretty much Ableton. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why I said it like that. <laughs> I think I said so like grim, that. it was my 2020 resolution to learn Pro Tools. Um, like to like be as comfortable in it as I feel in Ableton. And I just didn't do it at all. I didn't do it at all. But I love mm-hmm. Ableton. Uh, um, they've been real great to me. Like uh, Cole uh, over there, one of the Artist reps is always super responsive and has helped me out of many a jam. And we I all love, love Coleman so much. Yeah, he's the best. He's the absolute the best. best. So yeah, Ableton, uh, Ableton. I'm, I have the beta for eleven, but like I said, like I'm just so attached to ten. Like I just installed ten like four months ago. I've been using nine for forever, and I was like, no, but my quick keys and I use fades so often and. The automation changes. What will I do? And if I don't click directly on the clip, I just like couldn't. I was too stuck in my ways. But groups and groups, like that's, I can't believe I've been unable to group my groups for so long. And now I'm just drunk on groups and groups. Just groups within groups within groups. Oh, endless groups within groups within groups. Yeah. The 11 beta is interesting. I feel like. They changed exactly what you said earlier. They changed just enough that I was uncomfortable for a good week mm-hmm. and just was just like didn't make music almost because I was like, I think I need to sit down and just like, you know, make loops or something just to yeah. like get used to this. I think May is when I've decided I'm going to install it. I'll be wrapped with all my projects by the end of May and I'll have time to like be frustrated. Like right now, I just don't have the, um, the bandwidth the to, yeah. to learn. I'm just barely surviving. I don't have time to like build furniture. I just need to like keep uh, the goblins out of my mind. Cool. Well, the next one here then is uh, effect pedals. Effect pedals. Oh, that is. Uh, I guess lately the one I use the most is the H9. Mm. Um, that I used to use the Whammy 
uh, Digitech Whammy um, 4 uh, all the time. Probably the most um, signature aspect of my vocal sound would have been that. But now I use the H9. It's it's um, They changed the Whammy. I think it's a Whammy 5 now. And it's a different algorithm and it's a little slower. It has better tracking, but there's just an, a noticeable latency for me. Maybe not for someone who's uh, playing guitar, but like that speech latency, like just really screws my head. Um, yeah. It's almost too clean too. Like I feel like the Wayne before has that gurbly whatever yeah, thing. It's That's just so nice. Yeah. Especially like running feedback through it or sine waves, just like everything sounds crazy. Um, but yeah, I guess those are my, I'm, I'm looking around the room. Um, oh yeah, no, the even tide, or what is it? What are they called? MIDI tide. The MIDI tide, um, MIDI controllers. I don't know if those count as effect pedals, but they go into the H9. So For sure. they really open them up. Next is just any favorite plugins. Favorite plugins. Ooh, that's tough. That's tough. I do love the Arturia V Suite. I use it constantly. I love their um, effects bundle. I use their uh, compressors all the time. Um, I'm a big fan of East West, although I hate the way they do their tiered sample packs, like the platinum gold. Do you, do you ever use East West? Uh, I actually haven't really, like I did a bit when they had them on the NYU computers, but I am the weirdo who actually still like buys the, the East West stuff, you know, like the individual packs and I just try to like try them out first on someone else's I know's computer and then see what I'll use. I I've got the subscription and like, if you, so I had the subscription for gold and if you upgrade to platinum, you need to re-download the entire libraries, even though they contain the gold libraries. And when you go to open it, you need to also have both the platinum and the gold. It won't like find the samples within the platinum pack. You need, so basically you need like two terabytes of samples if you ever have started with gold and you go to platinum. I just think it's, it's a, I don't know, I've been on the phone with them and chat so many times. And uh, they're awesome people. I love the software. I just wish it was a little easier. Like, I won't upgrade again. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, if they came out with, like, Ultimate Titanium Platinum Gold XX5 or, like, you know, like, like Liquid liquid Life. Um, I don't think I would do it because I just don't have the – I don't – it goes back into what I was saying before about, like, um, what's it called when uh, you can open up – a file in an older version or an open up an old version in a newer file. What's that called in software talk? Like down something. Yeah. yeah. What's it? What is it? Uh, just something compatibility. Yeah. Like version compatibility or legacy compatibility. Right. I worry about that with, with, with third party plugins in particular. I haven't had any, pro I love sound toys. I use sound toys constantly on just about everything. Um, I really like the UV, UVI. Is that what they're called? I can, I can never remember. Yeah, but, but, but yeah, they have this really fun collection of. Let me just open up my plugins browser here. Of uh, but, 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 let me just pop this open. This is you can get the mouse clicks in for some sound design elements here. Here we go. All right, cool. My computer's giving me the spirally spin, and I'm recording. So that was this might have been a horrible idea. Well, you'll hear where the computer locked up uh, when it cuts to the Zoom recording you're doing. And hopefully we get back into Ableton. I hope I didn't, hopefully UVI didn't crash my recording. Thought that would have just uh, not been an issue. Sorry about that. Yeah, I guess I, I'm going to go with Arturia. I use them constantly. I think they're great plugins. Uh, they're the, the newest ones in my collection. I used to only use stock Ableton stuff because I wanted it to run like, I wanted to make sure that I could like, work in any environment on my computer or on an airplane or in my studio and not have to worry about an iLock. Oh, right. But, uh, and I, I go back and forth between like, I've got a Mac mini that I do a lot of my studio work on and then a show laptop and then like a writing laptop. So 
I couldn't just authorize everything to every computer. And like, sometimes people will hook it up, but sometimes people are like, no, you can buy three licenses if you want three computers. So uh, that's just impossible. So now I'm kind of in this like Mac, Mac mini iLock life. <laughs> but uh, 2020, 2021 seems to be the, uh, the, the age of the desktop computer. And hopefully by the time the new M2s or the upgraded M1s come out, the MacBook Pro will be a, a worthy investment. And maybe I'll go back to being a one computer person. Nice. Monogamous uh, computer user. Yeah, it's, it's it's hard to imagine after my years of being a, a poly computer lover. <laughs> For sure. Uh, well, you killed it here with Tech Talk. Uh, do you want to tell the people what uh, you've got going on next, Dan? Oh, dear. Yes. <laughs> I sound like Eeyore if you were like, just pulled out of a drowning in a pool of espresso. Um, what do I got going on next? Still working on Philly DA. Um, I'm still working on Philly DA. That premieres on PBS Independent Lens um, April, end of April, April 20th. And I've got a couple of other features that are in the can that I don't know what level of uh, announcement they are. But hopefully um, everyone gets vaxxed up and I'm supposedly going on tour again in the fall. I'll believe it when I see it. But uh, that should be something that could possibly be real unless, of course, the universe uh, wants to continue this amazing Black Mirror episode we call uh, COVID-19. So I think that might be what's going on. I'm, I'm terrible at remembering what I'm supposed to talk about and promote. Um, Strawberry Mansion and All, All Light Everywhere will be doing the festival circuit or if they find distro. I hope they hold out and do a theatrical run. I Especially, I don't know, both of them. Like, There's just a magic to seeing movies in person in the cinema. So I'm hoping that those films can, can have that experience. Nice. Well, Dan, it was such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm sorry that, uh, I don't know why I'm apologizing. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Um, uh, you've been real chill and I wish we could have, uh, I, 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 wishes and, and, and apologies. What am I doing? I had a wonderful time. My anxiety is just through the roof, but what can you do? Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong.